Let's pray real quick. Lord, I just thank you so much for uh, who you are, God, for your goodness and your grace and your mercy and kindness, for your sovereignty in our lives. Uh, Lord, for the work that you did on the cross that gives us the opportunity to come here this morning and hear your word and to understand and, um, and to just grow in our knowledge and our love and therefore our obedience to you. God, I just pray that you would be with me now as I share the disciplines, God, that you would just give me calmness of heart and clarity of speech, Lord, and that you would just um, bless these women here as they hear, not just from me, but uh, from Jamie this morning during the lecture, God. And we just thank you for, uh, again, for just your mercy to us. And we just pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Mandy Kershaw, and I've been going to Grace Bible Church since the beginning, since the church plant. And I'm married to Jeff, and we have three kids James, Miriam, and Isaac, and Cammie, thank you for that song, for sharing your new rendition of it. That song got me through my first pregnancy when I was really sick with (laughs) that first trimester. That was um, what got me through many just hard moments, so that was a sweet, sweet blessing this morning. So Um, I'm really grateful to be standing before you guys to share the disciplines. It was a blessing to my heart to to have this opportunity to prepare for this. I'd expose some lingering legalism in my heart about my motives for being in God's word, and it helped me to see how the gospel reality should play out in my home and in my heart in ways where I've grown lazy. So it was a blessing to me, and I pray that you will be blessed by the fruit of that process. But before we turn to the back of our binders, I want you guys to actually look at the front of your binders. Have you ever wondered what that wellspring for image uh, why that Why that image? What thoughts does it conjure up as you look at it in light of Proverbs 4.23? Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Well, I happen to know the creator's intent, um, as I am married to the media ministry leader. When Jeff was asked to create a graphic for this new ministry, he tried to not only capture the intent of the ministry, but also to keep a consistent character to the imagery among the ministries, build in particular. This picture seemed to best embody the idea of an inexhaustible and unseen source, a source that has no beginning, it can never be emptied, and whose living waters flow through and among the, the, the women of Grace Bible Church. So how does this living water flow through and among us? How does my heart and your heart engage with God's word and with one another? Let's turn our binders over now and read the purpose of Wellspring. The purpose of Wellspring is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts towards Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. The first discipline of Wellspring speaks to our hearts. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God and, in particular, the gospel. How are we to do this? Prayerfully. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 that we are to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. Prayer and reading God's word are inseparable. Why is this? Because of our mixed condition, our affection for the Lord waxes and wanes. It is never constant. We need to pray fervently that our love for God and his word would increase. We need to pray fervently that our desire to know the the God of the word would result in the quickening of affection. For out of a heart that is consistently engaging in God's word, we can, by his grace, preach the gospel to ourselves, renew our minds, um, 
rightly see our sin and repent, confess our dependency on him, and submit to him. When we are prepared for battle by prayerfully shepherding our hearts with God's words, then we can be an aroma of Christ to the people in our homes. Discipline 2 states she ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. Whether you have a full house or you live alone, we all wear many hats that apply to this discipline. Some of us are sisters and aunts, mothers, grandmothers, roommates, or wives. We are neighbors and friends and daughters. We've heard it before, but this statement continues to convict me every time I hear it, and that is, I do make an impact in my home. What kind of impact am I making? How am I to persevere in loving and serving those in my home if I am not persevering in shepherding my heart? If I don't per- persevere, then I, cannot seek, then I cannot confess sin, seek forgiveness, remind myself or others of the gospel, or call others, others to repentance. I feel the weightiness of this calling, and I praise God that it is not possible in my own strength. I need him desperately. Lastly, how we minister to others needs to be lived out in our hearts and homes first and foremost. The third discipline, the ministry, says, with a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Now remember, we never master disciplines one and two before moving on to ministry. If we did, then I would not be standing before you this morning because I am painfully aware of my sin and my ongoing need for God's grace and loving correction, for Christ's intercession on my behalf, and for the Spirit's help to illuminate Scripture and to um, convict me of sin. However, if we are diligently pursuing the first two disciplines, then we are equipped to step into each other's lives, to point one another to the only hope, to the only place to go where we find answers, and to bring the gospel to bear in every situation. And I'm thankful for that. I want to close with a prayer from Hannah Moore. I found this prayer just randomly over the weekend and some old resources that I had. She was a woman who lived in England from 1745 to 1833, and she was a a writer and a social reformer. So let's pray. Almighty God, I adore your infinite patience, which has not cut me off in the midst of my follies. I magnify your wonderful goodness, which has spared me thus long. Let me no longer abuse that precious treasure, time, which you have allotted me as a proper season to work out my salvation and secure that happiness, which in itself is great and infinite in its duration. Let me bid adieu to all those vain amusements, those trifling entertainments and sinful diversions, which have robbed me of many valuable hours and endangered the loss of my immortal soul. Let me no longer waste my time in ease and pleasure, in unprofitable studies, and more unprofitable conversation. But grant that by diligence and honesty in my calling, by constancy and fervor in my devotions, by moderation and temperance in my enjoyments, by justice and charity in all my words and actions, and by keeping a conscience void of offense to God and man, I may be able to give a good account in the day of judgment and be accepted in and through the merits of Jesus Christ, my only mediator and advocate. Amen. Oh, Father, we praise you. You are so, you are so good, and you are so kind. And Lord, may we, um, may we treasure uh, your life-transforming power of the gospel, um, and treasure you in the power of the gospel and what you are doing in and through each and every one of us. God, may we pursue you. Um, 
in, in these disciplines and shepherding our heart with your, with your precious word. May we, um, Lord, seek you as we care for those in our household with the gospel and as we care for others in the ministries that you have for us. Lord, um, thank you that we are yours, that we were um, once your enemy and um, you saved us from you and uh, uh, by you to you and there's nothing, um, Lord, that we have done that deserves um, your grace and mercy to us. So we commit this morning to you. May you be honored. May you be glorified. May it be a time of, of worship. Over in Wellspring Kids, Lord, we praise you for the women that are there who are faithfully serving you with joy. It is so um, exciting just to hear what you are doing um, in and through those the, the precious precious servants and the joy that they are finding in, uh, in doing it. And we lift those children up to you and pray, Lord, that you would impact their hearts with the gospel through this ministry and through um, these families and their homes. So, Lord, this morning we commit it to you, and we thank you uh, for the opportunity to gather. And we lift those up to you, Lord, our sovereign God, who are sick, whose children are sick. Lord, give them um, just an extra measure of grace, Lord, to care for others. And we pray, we know that you are the healer, and um, that Chris is trusting you, and um, we thank you that you are, you are, uh, that she sees um, some progress in her healing, and that's all glory to you. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right, so I was thinking not every one of you may have the outline if you weren't here last week or didn't print it off. Does everybody have it from last week? You do not? Oh, no, you do not. Um, do you have paper? Somebody give Janet some paper. She needs it. Or, okay. So um, sorry about that. Chris has the outlines, and we didn't think um, that we need it because what we're going to do this morning is we're going to finish up where Chris left, left off last week. So um, please take your outline out, and we're going to do just a quick review. First, uh, last week we looked at the relationship between the heart and household relationships and we saw God's concern that Israel rightly uh, think rightly about the household and everything and everyone in and associated with the household as we looked at the Ten Commandments and we saw that Israel was to be dominated by their concern for God's word and that there was an inseparable connection between that concern for his word and teaching it to their children. And then we saw over and over this connection between caring for our heart out of our love for God and caring for those in our home. And that our responsibility to shepherd our hearts and teaching it to the next generation is intertwined. And we saw how discipline one makes a strong impression on discipline two. And then we looked at Ruth, who was an example of someone who understood this. At a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, Ruth demonstrated... God's heart for the family. When she identified Israel, Israel's God as her own God, and she cared for her family, she cared for Naomi. So we see just how important it is to care for our hearts with God's word and to live out God's word in our homes so that we'd have an impression on the next generation. That we would hold out God's word to them because 
the only thing that can give wisdom that leads to salvation. And this week we're going to pick up with number three on your outline. Old Testament uh, failures to grasp God's heart for the family, for the home. There are a number of references listed on your outline, and we're just going to focus on the last two. Um, but please turn to 1 Kings 21. 1 Kings 21, and, we're, and uh, there's Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, 1 Kings. So after seeing Ruth last week, who understood God's heart for the home, we're now going to look at a woman who did not. We're going to look at Jezebel. And as you're turning, here's a little context. God made David king over all of Israel, all 12 tribes, after the death of Saul. And David was succeeded by his son Solomon as king, who was king over all of those tribes. But after Solomon died, the kingdom was divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is most often referred to as Judah, and the northern kingdom is usually called Israel. And it was plagued by one bad king after another. And Jezebel, she comes along about 75 years after the death of Solomon, and uh, she marries King Ahab of the northern kingdom. She was the daughter of a foreign king. Now remember back in Deuteronomy 7, we saw that intermarrying with pagan nations was forbidden. Nonetheless, Ahab marries Jezebel and brought her to Israel to be queen. And with her, he brought false gods, idolatrous worship, thus provoking God. So already we see it's not a man or a woman who understands God's heart for the marriage or God's heart for for family at all. But we are just getting started. In 1 Kings 18.4, Jezebel destroyed the prophets of God. And we know that Israel was plagued with idolatry throughout her history, but most of the time, um, they did continue to give God some kind of lip service, but not Jezebel. She wanted to destroy worship of Yahweh. And in 1 Kings 21, 4 and 5, Jezebel finds out that her husband, Ahab, he is sullen and vexed. He's resentful. He's angry because this man, Naboth, he wouldn't sell him his vineyard. So Jezebel, she schemes. to get the people to kill him, to kill Naboth, so that Ahab can go and steal his vineyard. So now, Israel, in in Israel, um, the land was supposed to be handed down from one generation to another generation. It was supposed to stay in the family. But Jezebel, she has no regard for the home. She has no regard for the family, no regard for the ways of God. It was trivial for her to, to take a man's life, to murder, to get his land, and to rob his family of their inheritance. And 1 Kings uh, 21-25 gives a commentary on Ahab after this incident, starting in verse 25. It says, Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord, because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. What an indictment. Stop and think. This one woman, Jezebel, is responsible for Baal worship in Israel, persecution of God's prophets, murder of Naboth, robbery of the family's inheritance, and inciting a king, her husband, to do evil, using and abusing her influence in the home. But sadly, that's not the end. Ahab and Jezebel had a daughter, Athaliah. Athaliah married uh, Jehoram, and he's a king in the southern kingdom. 
Now remember, her father Ahab was a king in the northern kingdom. But sadly, Jezebel's wicked influence spread through her daughter. How? 2 Kings 8.18 says, Jehoram, he did evil in the sight of the Lord because of his wife, Athaliah. Now we see a husband doing evil because of his wife, who had been influenced by her mother. And what kind of evil did he do? Well, second, you don't have to turn there, but Second Chronicles 21.4 tells us that when he had taken over the kingdom of his father, he killed all of his brothers. Then Jehoram and Athaliah had a son named Ahaziah. And he also did evil in the sight of the Lord because of his connection with his mother's family. It's kind of hard to keep straight. But so far we see Jezebel's evil influence on Ahab, the king of Israel, um, his, her disregard for Naboth and his family. We saw that evil influence passed on to her daughter, Athaliah, who then had an evil influence on her husband, the king of Judah. And now we see it extended to Athaliah's son as well. A corrupted husband, murder, robbery, corrupted children, a man murdering his own brothers, more corruption of a husband and children. It's just the exact opposite of God's heart for the home. This is, um, God designed the home to be a place where his name is declared, where uh, his mighty works are remembered and taught and praised, where one generation exhorts another generation to love God and to obey him. That this family has turned the home into a place that spawns evil, even against one another. And they rejected anything that had to do with God's heart for the household. It's a pervasive, persistent evil, and it's just spreading. It keeps going. We're still not done. Um, turn to Second Kings 11, and let's read uh, what happens next. Second Kings 11, chapter 1. When Athaliah, I'll let you get there. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her sons her son was dead, she rose and destroyed all the royal offspring. Do, do you see what this is saying? This is a grandmother killing, murdering her grandchildren. Stop. Think about that. Athaliah annihilated her grandchildren. And why? Well, so she could be in control. She wanted to be in charge. She wanted to rule. She wanted to be on the throne. And it's, and it's kind of easy to think, wow, you know, Jezebel and Athaliah, well, they're way more sinful than we are, right? I mean, we would never do something like that. There's no way. I would, I would kill my grandchildren. And, and maybe not, but really, this should make us shudder. Because if we stop long enough and think, um, we might be able to see our own sin in this. Remember, you know, even though God has given us new hearts and new desires, and we still live in a mixed condition, and we're not who we once were, yes, praise God, and we're not where we will be with him in eternity, but we still have a residue of sin. And I know there are times in my own heart I want to be in control. I want to rule to control others, especially those in my household. Is that something you struggle with? 
to grasp after what we want, you know, maybe even sin to get it. See, we can still struggle with the same things, the same sin, and it's destructive. It's destructive, and so we must guard our hearts above all else, our new hearts. Guard them. We need to lay them bare before God's word. Plead for a heart for our household that aligns with God's desires. With his desire to to, to rule over our own. Ladies, just as Mandy said, we do have an impact in our household. We do. The question is what kind? What kind of impact will we have? sobering, isn't it? So before we move on, let's review what we've seen so far in this survey. We started with looking at the relationship between the heart and household relationships in scripture, and then we saw the way Ruth's heart for God impacted the household in a beautiful way, and and then we just saw how destructive it is when there's rejection of God's heart for household relationships. And we must understand. We just we, we have to understand and embrace and remember God's heart for the household relationships and to see the impact that we have in those relationships in our home. All right, so let's move on to number four on your outline, the ease at which God is forgotten in the home. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 8, verse 10. And, and as you're turning there, here's a little context. We're back on the plains of Moab where Moses is reteaching the law to Israel. It's about 40 years after they left slavery in Egypt, long before they had a king. And this is Moses warning the Israelites, starting in verse 10. He says, When you've eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware. He says, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God and by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. So he's telling Israel, when, when you're enjoying the blessings of God, when things are going well, he says, beware, it's a time to be concerned. That's when we might be tempted to forget God. And how will you know that you've forgotten God? You won't be obeying him. Verse 12 says, Lest when you've eaten and are satisfied and have built your good houses and lived in them, and when your herd and flocks multiply, your silver and gold multiply, and all that you have multiplies, here's the warning, then your heart becomes proud and you forget. You forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God's warning them ahead of time. The household that God is giving them, where he is blessing them richly, is where they needed to be aware of the danger they were in. They needed to guard against pride, to guard against forgetting who their provider is and what he has done for them. And we need to do the same. We need to be aware of the danger and guard our hearts during these times. It's easy to become prideful and forget God when things are going well in our households. We, too, need to be aware. We need to be aware of that danger and guard against it. And thankfully in Christ, whether prosperity or hardship, no matter what circumstance, our household can be a platform for the gospel. 
and the gospel having a great impact there. Regardless of season of life, regardless of of circumstance, regardless of who lives there and who enters, right? Okay, number five. Let's, Let's look at number five on your outline, the impact of one's faith on the entire household. We're going to spend a few minutes in Acts 16 um, where we will see two different accounts of how just one person coming to faith in Christ can have an impact on the entire household. And we're not going to look at uh, Acts 10 this morning, but I encourage you to look at that on your own and read about Cornelius, who was divinely directed to send for Peter so that he could hear the gospel. And then Cornelius also uh, invited his friends and close relatives to hear the message that Peter was I'm going to preach, and by doing this, Cornelius brings the gospel to his household. His entire household was impacted. One man longing for God, one person longing for God, could be an instrument for the gospel in a household. And let's look at Acts 16, and this should be very familiar to us, right? Um, where Paul and Silas were traveling from city to city in Europe and Asia, strengthening the churches. And they came to Philippi, and where um, and here's where we read about Lydia, starting in, in verse 13. Chapter 16, starting in 13, Luke says, And on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and began speaking to the woman, to the women who had assembled. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Lydia believed in the God of Israel. God divinely brings Paul and Silas to her, where she and her household were gathered for prayer. And verse 14 tells us that the Lord opened her heart to the things spoken by Paul. So we can conclude that Lydia already believed in Messiah anticipated. Paul most likely told her that Messiah has come. And so her faith was transferred from Messiah anticipated to Messiah known. As a believer in God, she already understood the concern she was to have for her household. She would have known the scripture And we see that she had this connection to her household, right? And and in that, um, they were there where Paul um, was speaking. And we know that their faith also was transferred from Messiah anticipated to Messiah known. In verse 15, and when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. We see in in verse 15 that she urges Paul and Silas to stay with her. If you've judged me to be faithful, stay. A part of being faithful to the Lord would have meant that she understood the importance, that the Lord um, understood the importance and had a great concern for her household. Sorry. Now let's look down at uh, verse 29, and we'll see the same thing with the Philippian jailer. Sometime later, Paul and Silas, they're thrown into jail because of the big uprising in Philippi beginning in Acts 16:19, And this is where they had received several beatings. 
and they are taken into the innermost part of this dark, smelly prison. Their feet were clamped into stocks so they couldn't move or be comfortable. They're bloody, they're beaten, they're broken, they're bruised men in pain. And remember, what do we, what do we find them doing? They're not grumbling and complaining, are they? They're not stewing over being persecuted unjustly. They're worshiping. They're worshiping God. Remember what Scott said a few Sundays ago on this passage. The best missionaries are undeterred worshipers. The one who is most captivated by the love of God will be most effective in being used by God. I love that. That's such a great reminder for me. Well, here, here we see the circumstances that revealed the love and trust that Paul and Silas had for them. There's this violent earthquake then, remember, and the doors were open and the prisoners' chains, they came off, they came loose, all serving God's purposes for his servants. The Philippian jailer, he assumes everyone's escaped, and which would have meant that he would have been executed as a consequence for failing his duties as a jailer. So he's about to kill himself, and Paul assures him, don't, don't do yourself any harm. We're all here. And he shows compassion. And the jailer then asks him the only reasonable question after witnessing all of this in verse 30. He calls him sirs, and he says, what must I do to be saved? What an important, significant question. He didn't ask, how in the world did that just happen? He knew. And how did, they, how did they answer him? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. We see the jailer's connection to his household here because they were there by verse 32 and they heard the answer to the question as well. What must I do to be saved? And that night a household was changed forever. And verse 33 says, And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. He went from fastening their feet in stocks to showing compassion. And immediately he was baptized, he and his household, and he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. He rejoiced. He rejoiced greatly that he was saved and that his household was saved. So you see the concern he had for his household. What seemed like something terrible that was about to happen to Paul and Silas, remember, was God's plan A. God's plan A. God's plan was to bring the gospel to the jailer and to save him and his household. So we see the impact this jailer, this one person seeking after the Lord, being saved, made on an entire household. God desires that we do the same, that we bring the gospel into our household each and every day. And to do this effectively, we must be sure that we are soaking in the truths of the gospel daily. To be the hands and feet of Christ to those in our household. Because we love the Lord Jesus Christ and because we love his word. And it requires daily dependence on him to ask God, you know, if you would be pleased to take and change my whole household because of what you've done in me. Through what you're doing to me, I want to be a slave to that end. It's daily dying to self, putting ourselves under his word, living as Christ's slave in our households. But there is an attack on the household. 
That's number six on your outline. Let's go to Second Timothy 3. <clears throat> and honestly, should it surprise us? Should it surprise us that, the, that there would be an attack on the household? If there's this kind of link between our heart and our household and what God wants to accomplish, we shouldn't be surprised that the home is a place of attack by the enemy. Second, Second Timothy 3, starting in verse 1, says, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, there's the concern for the household relationship, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Why? Verse 6 says, For among them are those who enter into households, and what do they do in those households? Captivate weak women. And what characterizes this weakness? They're weak because they're weighed down. They're weighed down with sin led on by various impulses. These are women who in verse 7 are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Evidently, there are women in these homes who don't know. Who don't know. um, They don't know the power of the gospel, how the gospel addresses their sin, and, and therefore they're still weighed down by their sin. They don't know how the gospel addresses or dethrones their impulses, their desires, and how it changes them. They're led They're led by their impulses and their desires. And where do these desires and impulses and emotions come from? Well, they weren't equipped well. We know that to know how to deal with with their sin, impulses, and desires, with the truth of the gospel and the realities of of, um, the gospel's impact on their life. It says they're always learning. They're learning something, but it's not heart-impacting, heart shepherding to the word of God learning to get the knowledge of the truth so they're vulnerable they're vulnerable to attack and I think this is just so sobering don't you this is sobering warning warning for us we we have to be diligent and we have to be vigilant because attacks against the Christian household often come disguised to look benign to look harmless so who or what might be creeping into our homes? It's a, good, it's a good thing to think about. You know, in our day, in our generation, our culture says has a, has a really strong, loud voice, and it comes at us um, maybe in our TVs, social media, books, magazines, school, what they teach in schools telling us to give in to our impulses and desires, telling us to be lovers of self, and they want us to believe it's healthy and we deserve to put ourselves first. There's a self-centered, self-seeking, self-absorbed message out there saying that's how you solve your problems with no gospel answers, no gospel power. Even in a lot of materials that's cloaked themselves in the word Christian. 
We have to be careful and scrutinize everything we read, what we watch, what we listen to, what we, and, and we need to put it all under the authority of God's word. We live in a pleasure-seeking, pleasure-worshipping world. And when we're weak, we can be tempted to follow right along, not realizing that in so doing, we're missing the ultimate pleasure found in him and knowing our Savior, the knowledge of the truth. Psalm 16:11 says, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Because the word of God reveals the path of life. And when we spend time worshiping God and drawing near to him and his word, we will experience abundant joy and eternal pleasures as we unfold the riches of his, of his glorious grace. We'll become aware, more aware of our sin and our desires and quickly repent as we expose our hearts to, to him through his word. When we're clothed rightly in humility and dependence on Christ, We can be instruments in the hands of Almighty God, and we can minister effectively to those in our households and and to those in the church and even outside of the church. That's why we spend so much time on Discipline One, because if, if we do not understand why and how to shepherd our hearts to Jesus Christ through his word, if we don't use God's truths in the gospel to fuel repentance and growth in holiness, what can happen? We can become weak. We can become weak women who can pose a threat to our households, to our church, to the gospel mission. This is so serious. We, we can be vulnerable to believing lies, to drinking the world's Kool-Aid about whatever message they have, and then passing it right along to those closest to us. And that's just, that's just not what we want to do. So this is a strong warning. We've got to guard against the attack and care and protect those who are living in our households. And I know, you know what, I know many of you are doing this and you're doing it well, but it's good. It's really good. We need to hear and heed this warning to be aware. But we also need to guard against exalting the household above the gospel. Let's turn to Matthew 10. Matthew 10, verse 34. And we're on number seven in your outline. The family or home can become an obstacle to the gospel. Starting in, in uh, verse 34, Jesus says, he says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a mother against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. For he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow me and follow after me is not worthy of me. Wow. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that our identity, our identity in Christ is who we are first. It's who we are first and foremost. And everything else and everyone else falls under that identity, including our families. Young mommies, isn't that kind of 
<laughs> you know, we think we, we're putting our children. It's it's a, it's tempting to put our families first and our and our little ones first. We put Christ first. Jesus makes a strong point that the gospel and His kingdom is first, and everything else is second, including our families. You know, um, say in a household, the gospel invades one person, and that one person is saved and transformed, and and then that one person is called to bring the gospel into that family, into the rest of the family. And sometimes other family members are saved, or a whole household is saved, We've, like we saw with Cornelius, uh, with the, uh, Lydia, or the Philippian jailer, by God's grace. But that is in the Lord's hands. That's in the Lord's hands. Here Jesus is teaching that's not always the case. For some of us, when we bring the gospel to our family, we might actually find that our families um, become divided. Our family becomes divided. That members of our household become our enemies. I've experienced this, and maybe some of you have too, you know, with extended family and even family in the household, and it's, it's very difficult. But if, if the family begins to stand in the way of the gospel, that believer must follow Christ. We always follow Christ first not the family, even while she stays in the family, in that household, seeking to display the changes Christ has made in her. As she loves her family and she serves her family and she forgives and seeks forgiveness in her family and submits appropriately. So we need to keep reminding ourselves that our identity is in Christ and in no one or nothing else. Our identity as a wife or mother our grandmother is not first. Our identity in Christ is greater than any household or family identity. It's why, and it's why we can love and esteem and serve those closest to us, regardless of, of their reaction because of the gospel's impact in our lives. Jesus helps um, us to put our household relationships in proper connection with our kingdom identity in Matthew 12, where you know, he's with his disciples, he's gone days without eating, and his family comes looking for him, thinking that he's basically lost his mind. And uh, so they're coming to rescue Jesus. And what does Jesus say when he finds out that his family's outside? Matthew 12:50, Jesus says, Whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. He's helping us understand the household relationship and their proper relationship with our kingdom identity. God places a huge priority on the household, but higher still in the gospel. And we must hold family up high, but never above the gospel. Never. So let's think about maybe what some practical differences this might look like or what it makes. One way may be that if I put my identity in Christ under my family identity, I might find myself saying things like, that's just the way I was raised. That's just who I am. That's who we are in our family. We always argue at Thanksgiving. Or hanging on to family traditions and ways, um, maybe an excuse to sin. Or for us, we have family of a different, of a false religion, where at times we may have to make some decisions. And we do that with love and grace, but we always have to remember we are Christ first. 
See, when we place our household identity under our identity in Christ, um, then it's Christ's work in us that gets brought into those difficult relationships, not vice versa. And it can be hard sometimes when you're the only one in your home. It's like swimming upstream. There's no better way to love those in your household than to keep those affections, keep your affections for Christ first in your heart, regardless of your circumstance. And the gospel enables you to do that, to shine the light of Jesus in the midst of your family, even if you're the only believer there. All right, let's turn to Ephesians 5, and we're on number 8 on your outline. Submission to a husband requires a strong grasp on the gospel. Now listen, whether you're married or not, whether you're single, whether you're married, it is so important to understand biblical marriage. To, um, because it's, it's key in helping us be strong Christian women and not foolish, weak women. Our culture fights hard to make a mockery of Christian marriage. So it's our responsibility to see the beauty of the gospel portrayed in Christian marriage. Let's look at Ephesians 5:22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So when we think about marriage, we are to know and think about Christ in the church. Excuse me. We think of, of Christ in the church when we think about marriage. We all need to be the kind of women who treasure and who support and who build up marriage, Christian marriage, and how we think about marriage and and how we talk about marriage and how we respond how we talk about husbands how we talk about our own husbands or anyone else's husbands how we talk about men understanding submission changes from being that really dreaded word to that beautiful word picture of how Christ again and again submitted submitted himself to the will of the father just as husbands are to submit themselves to the headship of the lord Wives are to submit themselves to their husbands. We, we are to submit to Christ in everything. So a wife can look beyond her husband to Christ out of reverence for Jesus in light of, in light of all that he's done for us, in us, through us, in the gospel. We submit to Christ and we submit to our husbands. Your husband's your leader. And when we struggle to trust our earthly leader, we can still follow him. Because our heavenly leader, Jesus, is always trustworthy. He's sovereign. He's good. And that is where our confidence, where we rest our confidence in submitting to our husbands and where we encourage one another to do the same. And, you know, we're going to have more detailed teaching on this uh, very soon. So finally, number nine on the outline, a New Testament model marriage. And we're going to look at Priscilla and Aquila's sweet marriage in the New Testament. <clears throat> in Acts 18, 1 through 3, Paul, or Priscilla and Aquila, they partnered with Paul in the gospel, helping to support him through 
tent making. They were in ministry together. They worked together. And later in chapter um, 18, uh, they meet Apollos. And he had, he had this incomplete view of the gospel um, because he only knew of John the Baptist. And together, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, they were, they were able to help their brother who was deficient in doctrine. They both did that together in ministry. Um, she was right there with her husband helping to equip Apollo. So Apollos, he was sent off, and he was very useful for the gospel. And then we see again in Romans 16, Paul, he gives thanks to many Christians um, that he knows, and Priscilla and Aquila are among them. He said they risked their necks for the gospel. I want, I want that to be said of my ministry with my husband in some way that we have served him well, don't you? Um, it, it was an impressive marriage and, and one for us to model. They placed a priority in gospel uh, mission. So we can pray and ask God um, to cause our marriage to be used um, for the gospel mission as well. And I think they really understood their identity in Christ, right? So as we wrap up, we are uh, what we are seeing, what are we seeing in all of this? What is God's heart for the household? Um, we've seen that the woman who loves God places a priority on spiritually influencing her household with her heart for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we've seen that as a faithful believer in the gospel, where to bring a gospel aroma to the rest of our household, where to guard, to protect our household, to root out any false thinking or anything that is not gospel thinking, anything that could come in and deceive us and negatively influence our household and our families. So, what is the spiritual climate of your home? Have, have you grasped God's heart for the household relationships? Do you take your role seriously before God? Do you see how much is at stake? There's so much at stake as we think about the next generation and the reputation of God's word. Our obedience in our homes is essential for exalting God's design and his gospel work. And you know, our household relationships can be the place of biggest failure. I was reminded again. that because of my own sinful heart, my household is often a place of my greatest failures and deepest regrets. And I, as I am a sinner <laughs> saved by God's grace, living with a sinner saved by God's grace, and even when I don't want it to be, I can be provoking. I can seek control. I cannot assume the best. And I can't help but think maybe some here have strained or broken relationships with family members. Maybe even lost hope, but um, that is what makes our home such a perfect showcase for the gospel. It's God's grace to us that he would bring us to the end of ourselves so that he gets the glory for the work he does in us.
as we live it out. As we grow in living it out and we seek to live it out, trusting our Savior in our household regardless of how others respond. The gospel is that powerful. It enables us to love the people we live with because God first loved us. So as we look at what God's word says about the home, it may expose sin. It may expose um, our failures, our regrets. But when God exposes sin, it's for the purpose of restoration with him and others. That's his grace to us, and it's good. It's good. I want to end with the quote that we started with last week because I think it's just so great and such a great reminder, and it's on the front of your of your outline. So it's the gospel changes everything about us. Most particularly, it changes how we love and treat others. Soaking ourselves in the astounding love of God for us, weak and sinful as we are, will cause us to become people who love. The pure, undefiled Prince of Heaven, Jesus Christ, was called a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It should be obvious that he loves sinners because he has loved us. Living in light of this truth will enable us to love. It will remove all our self-righteousness and craving for respect. It will free us to lay down our lives and to not keeping a running and to not keep a running tally of who sins most or who serves most, and it will make us patient and gentle. The gospel is the environment for all our relationships. The gospel teaches us to love. 1 John 4, 9-11 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. So, we plead with God to develop this love in our hearts, to be undetoured worshipers in our homes. And it doesn't just happen. It takes discipline. So let's encourage one another to take advantage of every opportunity God gives us to love and care for those in our household. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you so much for um, sending your son to be the propitiation for our sins. Lord, I pray that we would leave here this this morning women who are sobered and encouraged and maybe even convicted that we are not loving and we are not impacting our household for the gospel as you would have us. So, Lord, I pray that we would seek you and that we would confess and repent and that we would, um, that we would pursue you more. Lord, I pray for any relationships that are um, broken. Lord, you are the restorer. And so I pray that you would do mighty things. Thank you for uh, just this morning and being able to be in your word. And now as we go into uh, discussion time, I pray, Lord, that we would be um, encouragers of one another in the gospel. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.